a couple of orange crates and put one crate at one end, one crate at the other, got a board and put it across the orange crates, nailed it together. My mother made a skirt and dad stapled it around the edge of the board and that was her dressing table. Little did we know, he had invented Ikea furniture. <laughs> if only he had spoken Swedish, we could have been rich. It just didn't work out that way. I bring that up because the other day my boys decided that I needed the Ikea experience. I'm not, a, I'm not really an Ikea kind of person. Ikea furniture is very simple, very angular, just you know, bare bones kinds of stuff. Uh, the, the, the kind of furniture I like is what you see around the church. Wing back chairs. You know, the kind that nobility sits in. <laughs> no, we don't do pipes. But, uh, you know, I, I like the wingback chairs, but my boys decided, no, you need to go to Ikea. You need the Ikea experience. It's not just a store. It's an experience. And so we drove over to the store and had a great time in the car. All the while, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, I'm just going to experience something I've never experienced before, furniture that I've never seen before. And so we got out of the car and we walked across the road and we walked in the main entrance of Ikea. And there... There was a display of Ikea furniture, and I want you to know it was a wing-back chair <laughs> with a floral print. But the reason we had gone to Ikea was that I needed a desk. Now, in Ikea terms, that means a tabletop with four legs, and that's what it turned out to be. But I needed a desk because I had gotten, uh, for Christmas, I had, I had gotten as gifts, uh, two computer monitors, two monitors, you know. Um, I've had one all these years, but now it's two. And I come to find out that this is like a status symbol. This, this is how you measure how important you are. How many monitors do you have on your desk? All these years I've only had one little monitor and I'd have to, you know, click off one window and bring up another program and look at that or hide it and tile it, you know, and, I'll, and on this little tiny monitor do all my work and I'm sitting there and come to find out all these years the really important people have two monitors. No, they have three monitors. They have one monitor where they're doing their word processing and making their reports and creating. They have another monitor where they've got their, their um, Excel spreadsheet and they've got all their information there. And they've got a third monitor where they have a movie going. I mean, it's... <laughs> I mean, you've got to have more than one monitor. Your importance in this world is measured by how many monitors you have. It's called multitasking. You know, multitasking is kind of an interesting thing. We talk about multitasking. Did you know where the word came from? It's been traced back. The first time it was used was in 1956 to talk about lawnmowers. Multitasking lawnmowers. And the idea was, here was a lawnmower that could both do the trimming in your yard and do the big expanse broad cutting. It could do multiple tasks. And so that was the original idea, that multitasking was the ability to do more than one thing. Then in the 1960s, computer scientists and programmers started talking about multitasking computers. And that's because you have a little thing in your computer called a processor, and the processor does all the work. It goes out to your memory, gets something in, does something to it, and puts it out. And your processor's doing all the work. And back then, you only had one processor. And so uh, they were writing programs, and he said, you know, a lot of times this processor isn't doing anything. He's just sort of waiting for output or waiting for input or something. While he's not doing that, he could go do something else. And so the idea of multitasking was that your processor could run many programs at the same time. You could have multiple tasks going on at the same time. 
No, no, what really happened, though, is that the processor first did one task, then it'd do another task, and then it'd go back to the first task, and then it'd go back to the second task, and it would just keep going back and forth between the two tasks, just going back and forth, back and forth. It can only actually do one thing at a time, but because you weren't as fast as the speed of light, it looked like it was doing two things, but it's actually only doing one thing at a time. But that's what multitasking was until we got to the 1990s. And then we started talking about people doing multitasking. Yeah. You ever said I'm multitasking? No? Okay, thank you. Lisa and I will just, just talk here for a minute. So, <laughs> so, what, so what goes on is that uh, people say, well, I'll, I'll just multitask this. I can do more than one thing at a time. And now it's required. You have to be multitasking. Did you know your brain can only do one thing at a time? When you say multitasking, what you're really doing is you're doing this for a while, and then you stop that, you go over here, and you start that, and you go on. And there's always a lag between the two. Scientists have shown that if you are multitasking, you are actually 40% less productive than if you just did all of one and then did all of the other. But we feel more productive. I mean, multitasking is something that is sort of ingrained in us. Did you know TV dinners are a way to multitask? Think about it. Come on. Okay, fine. That, 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 that. But, you know, we're, we're into multitasking, and, and it's become a part of our socialization. You walk into somebody's office and you say, can I talk to you? And they say, do you mind if I multitask? This is, anybody? Okay. You mind if I multitask? What are they really saying? Do you, want, do you mind if I only give you half my attention? Have you ever said, you know, don't, don't stop what you're doing, go ahead and multitask, what do you mean? Saying, I'm only going to half talk to you, you only half talk to me, because I'm multitasking over here. So we got all this multitasking. And what multitasking is, is another word for it. It's called stress. It's called stress. Because you think you have to do so many things, you can't do any one at any one time, and you can't do them all well, and they're all hanging up in the air, and you've got multiple deadlines and multiple pressures going on, and there's just this pressure and this stress coming down into our lives. We just call it multitasking, but it's stress coming into our lives. Now, Jesus had something to say about that in uh, John chapter 16. He said, in this world you will have multitasking. <laughs> well, actually the word there, uh, the Greek word is lipsis. Uh, it's usually translated something like uh, uh, tribulation, but a good word to translate it is pressure. In this world you will have pressure. The Greek word is a picture of of pinching something together, like, like taking a watermelon seed and pinching it until it flies across the room. Do not try that at home. And so uh, Jesus said, in this world you'll be pinched together and you'll have pressure set upon you. Now there'll be the normal pressure of life, you know, th this just happens because you exist in a fallen world and there will be pressure and, and tension and stress on your, on your life. But because you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will experience a peculiar kind of stress. You live in a world that is anti-Christ. You live in a world that is against the things of God and is against the people of God and, and, and just tells you that you, you cannot you know, just uh, uh, live freely, that the world wants to constrict your, your life of, of faith. And so in this world, you will have that kind of stress. You will have that kind of pressure put upon you. Jesus went on to say, by the way, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so in this world, you'll have pressure, you'll have stress, you'll have the peculiar stress of being a believer in a fallen world. But be of good cheer. Jesus has overcome the world. Now I bring this up 
uh, so that as we approach Paul's prayer for the Ephesian Christians, we have some sense of why he's praying what he's praying. It's not like the Ephesians were under any more pressure than anybody else, but because of their faith, they would be outsiders in their community. People would look at them as, as sort of the oddballs. What's wrong with you? You don't worship our gods. You're putting everybody in danger because there's going to be a drought or a famine because of you Christians. You're worshiping the wrong god. And uh, so they were experiencing this kind of pressure. They were losing their houses. They would lose their lands and property. They'd be, they would be fired from their jobs uh, unless they were slaves in which they uh, would suffer even more. But uh, the, the, the point was they were it, just because they were believers, they would be experiencing those kinds of things. And so as Paul is thinking about, I'm praying for you. I'm thanking God for you, first of all. I'm just thanking God that the Holy Spirit got a hold of your heart and turned you around and brought you to Christ. I'm just thanking and praising God for you, first of all. He said, but secondly, I'm praying certain things for you, certain things that would enable you to be faithful in the Christian walk. And so he's, he's not just thinking of things, you know, oh, I've got to think of something, but rather he's thinking about and praying for those particular things that empower Christian believers to manage with the stress and the pressure of being a believer in Jesus Christ. And I want for us to read it that way. We'll, we'll just dive into it, uh, verse 15. And we're not using the whole paragraph this morning, um, but we'll, we'll quit about halfway through. First part we dealt with a couple of weeks ago. It says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith and your love for all the saints. He says, I, I know you've bought into this. He says, because I've heard of that, I don't cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And what is he praying for? I'm praying that, verse 17. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. I mean, that, that's just worth uh, a little worship right there. But I'm, I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. Has anybody pulled out their yellow Trinity highlighter yet and just circled and highlighted that verse? This is why we know, teach, believe the doctrine of the Trinity, that God, the Father of glory, the God of Jesus Christ would give you the Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit of wisdom. And so the, the experience of salvation is experience of the fullness of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We could dwell there longer, but I just want you to notice that in, in passing. So he says, I'm, I'm just praying to the fullness of who God is and what he, he has accomplished, that he will give you the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. You know, you can know a lot of things, but it doesn't do you any good if you don't know what to do with what you know. You can know a lot of facts about Jesus. You can have a lot of Bible verses memorized. You can be a pretty adept theologian and be able to explain the intricacies of Christian doctrine, but if you don't know how that works out in your life, it's a useless kind of knowledge. But the utility of that knowledge, the, the ability for that knowledge to be used in your life, isn't something you have to figure out on your own. Paul said, I'm praying that the, that the Father would give you the Holy Spirit, would give you the spirit of wisdom. You see, a lot of things about Christ don't make sense. If you were a Greek philosopher, you would look at the cross and you would say, this doesn't make any sense. You're telling me that the God of all the universe, the God who is sovereign over all, the God who has all power and all authority. You're telling me that he came incarnate, that he sent his son incarnate to dwell on the earth, lived a sinless life, and then he gets crucified? Who wants to serve a God like that? Who wants to serve a God that can't even keep his son out of trouble? 
Who wants to serve a God who, who would allow his son to be crucified in a cruel and painful, humiliating way? Who would serve a God like that? And so as a Greek philosopher, you're looking at that and saying, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. By the way, if you want to hear people say that today, just, just you know, YouTube Islam and the cross. And that's what you'll hear. This is the dumbest thing you ever heard. How silly is it that God would send his son, his son of God would die on the cross? That's silly. If he was the son of God, he could have, he could have called 10,000 angels. But you know, to those of us who are being saved, those of us who have come to the cross and there we've seen the sacrificial lamb of God for our sins, those of us who have come to the cross and there we have witnessed the immeasurable grace of God that is poured out for us on our behalf, unworthy, undeserving, it's given to us by the blood of Jesus. We look at the cross and we see the very power and the very wisdom of God. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I'm praying that you get the spirit of wisdom and that you would have a spirit of revelation. Uh, revelation is, is what God tells you that you'd never, ever be able to figure out on yourself, uh, uh, by yourself. The, the, the revelation that, that Paul's praying for is that in those moments where you need to make a decision or you need to take an action and you don't know where to turn, that God would reveal to you what it means to be faithful to him and glorify him in the decision that you make and the action that you take. He says, I want you to have a spirit of wisdom. I want you to have a spirit of revelation. And I want you to have a spirit of knowledge. I just want you to know what's happening so that you can glorify the Father through it all. And so he says, I want you to have the Holy Spirit working in your life. Remember, we're talking about the stress of being a believer, the stress of getting through life. First of all, Paul says you need the Holy Spirit. I want to remind you that the Holy Spirit is why you can do what God asks you to do even when you know you can't do it. The Holy Spirit is why you can do what God asks you to do even when you know you can't do it. Because you can't, the Holy Spirit can that's why we dare great things for Christ. That's why we do just, just unimaginable things for Christ. Things that are inconceivable. Things like forgiving people who have wronged us. Things like giving ourselves and our lives and our resources away for the sake of the glory of God. That's why we do what the world says is unimaginable. It is not only imaginable, it's doable, and we do it because of the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, you, you know, in this coping with stress, if we're thinking about it that way, Paul says, first, I'm praying that you have the Holy Spirit of God given to you through the Son by the Father. Okay, so the Holy Spirit will be given to you. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, and um, that's, that's just a, a way of talking about seeing things not just with a, a, a merely materialistic, uh, secular, worldly vision, but with a vision raised um, on high. Uh, by the Holy Spirit. But he's, he's praying. What does he pray that they will know and do? First, this is, this is about the middle of verse 18, if you're following along. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He says, I, I, I just pray that you'll remember your hope in Jesus Christ. The hope to which he has called you. A lot of that he's already talked about in chapter 1 when he talked about um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit there in the first uh, uh, 14 verses he talked about how God has blessed us choosing us, adopting us uh, redeeming us, forgiving us, filling us you know, those, those kinds of things um, that, that's, that's part of the, that hope but it is the hope of glory that God has promised to us let me uh, tell you kind of how that works um, Jesus probably experienced some stress 
before the cross. Um, I just take you to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there Jesus uh, just he kneels and he prays. And he's praying diligently. The world is turning against him. His friends are abandoning him. His very closest circle of friends, the three disciples he brought with him, they've gone to sleep on him. He's literally alone with the pressure upon him of the cross, knowing the agony, not just the physical agony, which is agony and pain enough, but knowing that what is coming is that the sins of the world will be just just poured out upon him and his body, that he will be covered with the loathsome sin that is so agreeable to us, but anathema, just, just absolutely horrendous to one who is sinless in perfection. Jesus knowing that he's going to have that sin attached to him for us, knowing that he's going to experience abandonment by the Father that we deserve. We don't understand it, but he'll cry out, you know, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He knows that's coming. He says, Father, if there's any way, can we just bypass this cup? Can we just do something else if there's any way possible? In that moment of stress, he said, but you know, Father, it's your will. It's not mine. It's your will that counts. Not my, my human you know, feeling and experiencing. The author to the book of Hebrews put it this way, for the sake of the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. You know, for some, you know, by, by the power of the Spirit in, in him, Jesus was able to look at the cross and all the agony and the suffering, and he looked right through it, and he saw the joy of the Father. And he saw the joy that would be his in the presence of the Father. He saw the power of the Father working out the glory of the Father in his life. And so for the sake of this joy, the hope of his calling, he was able to endure the stress of the moment. Paul says, I'm praying that you just know the hope of your calling. And this isn't just, you know, pie in the sky by and by. This is a way of putting your life into perspective. We live in the tyranny of the present. We think whatever's going on today is all there's ever going to be. It's not ever going to change. I can't ever get out from under this. It's just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. And the Holy Spirit comes and lifts up our heads and says, I want you to see something. There's where God has called you, the glory of the Father. All this is temporary. It might go on another week, a month, a year. It might go on another decade. You might struggle with this the rest of your life. But at the end of it all, you see the glory of the Father. That's the hope of our calling. If you really want an exposition of what this hope means, just read Romans chapter 8 to remember when we worked through that. So um, Paul says, I'm, I'm praying that you have hope because that will give you a perspective on time. And, and just, just in a very practical way, in, in moments of stress, you know, when you're being torn in, in six different directions, just, just pause for a moment, lift up your eyes, and see the glory of God's grace and the hope of our calling. It will put everything else into perspective. And then Paul goes on, he says, then also... I pray that you would have, uh, that you would know what is the hope of calling to which he's called you. And I pray that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That you would know the richness of your inheritance. You remember when we talked about inheritance uh, back in the front part of this chapter, uh, we discovered that the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, they came into the promised land and they were each, each tribe was given an inheritance, a lot, a portion. 
They were given a certain amount of land, and that was theirs to work and to live off of. That, that's how God was going to sustain their, their family. And everybody got something except the Levites. The Levites were going to be the priests. And God said, your inheritance, your portion, is going to be to worship and glorify me. Your inheritance is going to serve my people through offering of the sacrifices and, and, and maintaining a tabernacle and a temple presence. Your lot and inheritance is to glorify the Father. And when Paul says, I'm just praying that you'll just know the richness of that, of that inheritance, how wonderfully rich and deep and profound it is, he's saying, I just want you to remember, you get to glorify God. You get to glorify the Father. That's why if you ever find yourself in Philippi and somebody falsely accuses you and the crowds rise up against you because after all, you're on the wrong side of things and there's a prejudice against you because of your, of your, of your nationality and of your religion. Fortunately, in our country, such things don't happen. But when it does, you know, and someone, you know, they, they lift you out of Philippi and they say, you know, you're a terrible, awful person and they throw you into prison. They don't just put you in jail, but they take you and they put you in the inner jail. And not only that, they shackle you hand and foot and then they turn the lights out and close the door and you're sitting in darkness and all you ever tried to do was help people and share Jesus. And what will happen is you'll just remember my inheritance is to worship God. And you'll turn to your buddy Silas and you'll start to say, why don't we sing a little bit? Silas says, Paul, I've heard you sing. Why don't you just hum and listen to me? <laughs> I don't know. I just made that up. And you start to sing as best you can. And you're, you're singing this hymn. And what do you want to sing next? Well, let's sing that hymn. And as you're going along singing, you forget the words. You just make them up. The other prisoners start to listen. They start to say, you know those, those guys who got thrown in here because of their faith in Jesus? They're not doing what we're doing. They're not complaining and griping and they're not bemoaning and they're not wailing. And sure, that's justified for us. But you know, these guys, they're worshiping their God. You know, it's almost like they know something we don't know. When the earth trembles... The shackles fall off and the doors fly open. You don't have to run because you've been worshiping God and the God who, whom you worshiped opened the doors, lifted the shackles, and you just have a feeling God has something in store for me right here in the inner prison, still dark. And you just wait for the jailer to come your way because you know the richness of your inheritance to speak of Jesus and to glorify him in your life. You know, and, and it just a, in a very simple, practical way, you know, when, you, when you're torn apart by stress or, 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 or things are coming down on you and, you and you just don't know how to deal with the pressure, just remembering, you know, I'm here to praise and to glory, uh, to give glory to God, the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm just here to worship God. That's what really matters. And you know, whatever's going on here, it, it can't take that away. And you just pause a moment and you sing a hymn and if you can't remember the words, you make them up. Because you're here to glorify God. It gives you a real insight into the priorities of life. It gives you a real insight into what matters most. You know, even a computer, you remember we talked about multitasking? They don't just do whatever's next, they do whatever's prioritized for them. And that's the way we need to be. Our priority 
is Jesus. We glorify the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, I'm just praying that you'll know the richness of that inheritance, that it just, it just sort of infuses your life with everything that you do. And then he goes on, this is verse 19, and I'm praying that you know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That you would know the power of God in your life. Now, we'll, we'll go on and look at more of that because the rest of the paragraph has to do with the power of God in raising Christ from the dead and ascending into heaven, seated at, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I've just slipped back into my childhood. But that you would know the power of God because that will give you an insight on the resources that are yours. And it comes back to the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit is why you can do whatever God asks you to do, even when you know you can't do it. The Holy Spirit will do that in you. Now, so that you don't think this is just a sort of a one-off in Scripture, I, I just want to remind you, back in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 46, uh, we read, Be still and know that I am God. You know, just, just drop everything. By the way, the next time somebody comes in your cubicle and you've got three monitors, well, wait, I, I push the identify button and it tells me which monitor is which. Sorry. <laughs> But uh, I learned that. But somebody comes in and says, can I talk? Here's what I want you to do. If you've got a PC, I want you to push down the Windows button and then push the letter L. Everything will go blank. And you turn and you face them and say, you've got my full attention. Just try that. And, and when they pick themselves up off the floor, you say, I'm doing that because God loves you so much, he wants me to give you my full attention right now. That way, just a little thing. Um, I, I, I just made that up, but, but, but try that um, in there. Um, but uh, be still and know that, that I am God. Um, let me just give you one, one final example. I know time eludes us. And uh, you don't need to turn there. I will read this for you. This is found in, in uh, Luke chapter 11. It starts at verse 38. Uh, Jesus is walking along with his disciples as they often did. It says, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So Mary's sitting there, Jesus has come in, best thing to do, sit down and listen. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She was multitasking. I've got to get the roast in the oven, I've got to get the potatoes done, I've got to get dessert out, I've got to get the bread ready, I've got to set the table, I've got to make sure we've got the flour display, and she was just multitasking all over the place, and, and, and she's amazing at it, but she's doing all this multitasking. That's the meaning of the Greek. And she comes up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Lord, don't you care that I'm multitasking here and I'm going a thousand different directions? Tell her then to help me. Oh, don't you wish you had a sister like that? <laughs> Jesus, tell my sister to multitask. Tell my sister to be as distracted as I am. Tell my sister to get just as frazzled as I feel right now. Tell my sister to feel just as attacked and pressured and under the stress that I have right now. Jesus, tell my sister that she needs to stop her Bible study and she needs to come with me and join the world with this insane life by pressure through multitasking. 
It's all there. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, evidently she was still a teenager and he had to repeat. <laughs> yeah, you know it's true back there. You know it's true. But he said to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion. It's not going to be taken away from her. There's a lot of different ways to read that, and I know scholars interpret it in several different ways. But it's basically this. Mary, you've been distracted to death. This multitasking is going to be the death of you. Especially because you're, you're letting things of, of the world and things that don't matter and trivial things be, be put on the list of things you have to do. She says, Mary, there's really only one thing you need. And Mary's found it. Martha, you, you need only one thing. And Mary has found it. Because she's sitting here with me. And she's listening. And so, folks... Folks, there's only one thing necessary in your life. Really only one thing. That's the glory of the Father through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's only one thing really necessary, and that is that you spend time at the foot of Jesus. And just learn there the glorious, glorious Father that we have in heaven. That you learn the wonderful beauty of Jesus. And that your life and your eyes are just fixated on him. And then you can serve dinner. But you'll realize it doesn't, doesn't matter as much as you thought it did. You can go ahead and, and serve dessert and the ta- wait on the table and all that. And you'll realize that it got done anyway. But what you will also realize is, and I got to glorify God in it. Because that's the way I'm going to deal with stress. I'm just going to pause, be still, know that he is God. Look at the joy set before me. Know that I can endure anything by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to latch on to the one thing that's really mandatory. That's Jesus. So this week, Monday, just before lunch, when you're saying grace over lunch, it's okay to say grace over lunch. Okay. Just before you do, I want you to pause and to just thank God for having a calling of hope in your life. No matter how bad it seemed, you you have hope in Jesus Christ. Tuesday, just before lunch, I want you to pause and I just want you to thank God for the richness of his calling and the inheritance that is yours. And on Wednesday, you see a pattern developing here, don't you? I want you to stop and to praise God for the immeasurable greatness of his power in your life. And then on Thursday, start all over again. Okay. Because that's, that really, when you think about it, if you're going to deal with stress and with pressure, if we're going to deal with the stress of being a believer in a secular world, it's going, only going to happen when we have our eyes fixed on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Our eyes on things above, not on things of earth. Let's pray together. gracious Father of glory, I just pray that you would give to us in this room a spirit of wisdom, spirit of revelation, and a spirit of knowledge of Jesus.
Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and enlighten our hearts so that we would indeed know and latch on to the hope to which you've called us. Father, that you would make real to us the riches of your glory and the inheritance that is ours. And Father, that we would just come to some appreciation of the immeasurable greatness of your power. So Father, we want our hearts, our eyes, our minds, everything about us, we want them fixed on you, focused on you, you alone, your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.